Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. John, this week there were some big questions circulating in the Capitol that affect kids. Who will pay to upgrade schools that are falling apart? Should kids get vaccinated if their parents are against it? Should a kid get suspended for disrupting class activities? These were some of the issues that were front and center on the legislative agenda, and Governor Newsom signed several bills in response. You know, this was the last week before the legislature adjourned, and one issue that was really up in the air until Governor Newsom's staff cut a deal on it was whether the legislature should put a $15 billion school and college construction bond on the ballot for voters to decide. We'll be speaking with Jeff Vinson, who is co-director of the Center for Cities and Schools at UC Berkeley. He had a key role in shaping the K-12 piece of the bond that voters will see in March 2020. But first, with the third Democratic presidential debate just behind us, we'll talk about a newish education coalition, a national one called Ed2020. It's pushing for presidential candidates to come up with a comprehensive agenda. I mean, many of the candidates have had their own proposals around college affordability, Kamala Harris about increasing funding for teacher salaries. But this coalition, which is made up of about 40 organizations, the Children's Defense Fund, NAACP, the National Education Association, and from California, the Learning Policy Institute, headed by Linda Darling-Hammond, the coalition is saying, really, what's needed is a comprehensive agenda, as opposed to sort of one-off or discrete proposals. Right. Its agenda is broader, and it includes universal preschool, increasing more federal funding for K-12 schools, along with better preparing teachers there, and and it includes making college more affordable, too. And more workforce training for those who make it through college into the workplace, hopefully most students who start off, as well as those who never go to college. We talked with Laura Shifter. She's the policy director for the Ed 2020 Coalition. She's also a lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And I noted in our conversation that uh, the coalition's push for a greater federal investment education is a dramatic contrast to the Trump administration's education agenda, which has been calling repeatedly for cutting federal investment in education. Yeah, and I think that that's in part where the opportunity has come, is what we see is that Democrats and Republicans, 87% of Americans, believe that increasing investment, federal investment for schools should be a priority for the federal government. And so we really see this as an opportunity in a bipartisan way to push the federal government to advance education in a more comprehensive and complete way. And is this a bipartisan effort? Seemed like overwhelmingly democratic. This is a bipartisan effort. We're trying to call on Democrats and Republicans. And the polling seems to indicate that this is a very important issue for Democrats and Republicans. So our message in this is that we'd like to see all candidates ensure that their policy proposals meet the principles that we've outlined. Laura, the thrust of education policy these days is to push decision-making and actually spending to the states and local districts. That really is the, the purpose of the Every Student Succeeds Act, trying to get away sort of from federal influence in education. Don't these principles that you've outlined run against the grain a little bit along those lines? Well, I think what our principles do is they're not specific policies that we are advocating for. What we're using these principles as are benchmarks. And I think what you're seeing happen a lot on the campaign trail is you're having a lot of real conversations about transforming large systems, whether that be immigration, whether that be healthcare, or even addressing climate change. 
And what we think should also happen in this component is real national conversations about, well, what do we believe the education system should look like across this country? And how do we effectively support that from the federal, state, and local level? And there's a lot of opportunity to really advance the system. And I think, you know, as candidates are out there and talking about their vision for the country, they should make sure to talk about America's education system in that vision. How do you plan to keep education in the forefront of this campaign in which there'll be a lot of issues and no doubt a lot of distractions? What we are going to try and do is continue to try and elevate education. I think that there could be a lot of distractions, but I think one of the important things to come back to is that education can be a unifying issue. You know, a lot of Americans out there are in the public education system or in the education system in early childhood and in post-secondary. And this is an issue that impacts Democrats, it impacts Republicans. And so we need to keep bringing it back to the fact that this is something that is relatable to a lot of Americans and a lot of Americans experience. And that's why it's an important issue for candidates to continue to talk about. Laura, you know, my sense is that education has figured pretty prominently in the campaign so far. I mean, most of the candidates or many of them calling for free college education or much more student aid. Kamala Harris has pushed for a big, big investment in teacher salaries. I think a lot of them agree on early education. So are are you pleased with the role or the prominence of education in the campaign so far? So I think we have seen proposals that are out there on education. I think what our coalition really wants to see is this more comprehensive vision for what Americans' education system should look like. So I think what we're really calling on candidates to do is use the principles that we've outlined here, as I said, as guideposts and say, do my policies align to these principles? Or how can I develop policies that do align to these principles? And really talk about the importance of ongoing learning opportunities for everyone who's living in America from birth through career. This really needs to become a national imperative. It's essential for our economy for the future. It's essential for our future democracy. And so we need to just keep hearing these messages beyond the singular policy proposals that are developed and really thinking about the vision for America's education system. We well, really appreciate you talking with us today, Laura Shifter, Policy Director for Ed 2020. Look forward to staying in touch with you during the months to come. Thank you so much for having me. shift now to the issue of how to come up with the funds needed to renovate existing schools and to build new ones. There was a lot of action this week in the legislature on that, John. Fill us in. You know, it's not often that researchers get the satisfaction of seeing an immediate impact of their work, but that has happened for Jeff Vinson of the Center for Cities and Schools at UC Berkeley. Some of the findings in his study for the Getting Down to Facts Research Project last year has led to changes built into the bond measure that will appear on the March 2020 ballot. Welcome and congratulations, Jeff. Thank you. It's good to be here. Remind us of what you found in the Getting Down to Facts study that you did for the nonprofit Pace and Stanford University. What's wrong with the current system? 
Well, our research and getting down to facts and you know other research that I've done on this topic has really found a pretty consistent pattern of disparity in school facility funding across California. You know, districts with higher property values and fewer low-income families tend to raise more local bond funds, and then they also tend to get more state funding for their facilities, and particularly for renovating, or as the state calls it, modernizing their buildings. So what we found in getting down to facts is that the poorest districts in the state were getting much less than the wealthiest districts in the state in terms of state funds to renovate and upgrade their buildings. In fact, the wealthiest districts were getting eight times the amount of money as low wealth districts were to do that work. So how will the new system work to distribute the money and why will it be fair? The bill really does put forth a whole new way of funding school facilities in California. For the past 20 years, California's had a school facility funding program that primarily was a first-come, first-serve approach that largely gave each district similar funds for their project, regardless of whether that district is serving a wealthy community or a very poor community. And so over the years, many people, myself included, have pointed to the concern that this is not an appropriate way to give out state dollars. The bill outlines a whole new way of prioritizing what projects get funded, as well as the amount of money that each district would get. And some of the key things in the bill are a new point system that will be used to prioritize which projects get funded first, a new wealth-adjusted funding formula that takes into consideration property values and the number of low-income students. There's additional supports for small districts in there. It requires school districts to do a five-year facility master plan and do inventories of the facilities that they have. And the important thing there is that it helps districts plan, but also that the state of California now potentially will have good data on all the school buildings across the state, and and it would help us in future years prioritize needs even better. The bill also has a slight increase in the number of districts that potentially will qualify for financial hardship, which has been part of the program for a long time. But for those very poor districts, they can get more of their project paid for by the state. So Jeff, does this go far enough to address the issues of inequity that you raised in your report? I certainly think the bill is a move in the right direction. You know, it starts to put school facility finance in California down the same road as California's other education finance through the local control funding formula. And I think that's a good thing. And it was a smart decision by state leaders. That being said, the bill is really just a start. You know, it moves us in this direction of funding more based on local needs. And, you know, one of the concerns that I have when I look at the bill is that, yes, there is a wealth-adjusted funding formula. But that being said, that adjustment is very small. It's only a 5% difference between the wealthier districts and the poorer districts. For example, a wealthier district is still going to get a 60% state match on its modernization project. A much poorer district can get a max of 65% state match. So that 5% is not a big difference. Is it an improvement? Yes. But we'll have to see over time as we watch what happens with this bill and what happens with districts over the next year getting state funds to modernize and build new schools if it reduces the disparities that we've seen over the last decade. We've been speaking with Jeff Vincent, who is co-author of a study for the Getting Down to Facts project on school construction bonds in the state of California over the past 10 years. Thanks for coming in, Jeff. Thank you for having me.
Well, John, I think one of the things that's been notable so far is that uh, Governor Newsom has been pretty bold of several of these bills, including some that Governor Brown really was trying to stay away from. For example, signing a bill extending the ban on willful defiance suspensions as a kid who are disruptive in class. He signed a bill to extend the ban to basically all elementary grades. Up to now, it was K-3 grades, and at least for a five-year period to middle school. So uh, it's a pretty big deal for folks who have been pushing to try to restrict those kinds of suspensions. And he certainly jumped into the charter school issue. Governor Brown really didn't want to change the law at all. And Governor Newsom jumped in and reached an agreement, a compromise that should really uh, make some difference, but at the same time, probably bring some needed peace to the charter wars in California. Also going to sign a controversial vaccination bill, cranking down on these medical exemptions. That was a loophole in the law. And it looks like he'll sign a bill extending paternity and maternity leave, fully paid maternity leave, to uh, eight weeks. And so this is a pretty strong signal <laughs> that, that he's using the power of the pen here to get some reforms through. The thing that I wonder about is what are the bills that he's going to veto? You know, when Jerry Brown was governor, we always looked for his veto messages, which were often very kind of zen-like and very interesting and very provocative. But he did veto quite a lot of bills, as you have to. We still don't know what bills he's going to veto, and I'm looking forward to seeing those. And that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe MacDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra and our own Justin Allen. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.